Hi listeners! As we near the end of our third season, I just wanted to thank all of you for making ed infinitum a part of your routine. Whether you're a teacher, a student, a parent, or just someone interested in school, you've been the reason I keep sinking so many hours into researching and making these episodes. And you'll be the reason it continues into a fourth season, if it does. Yes, I'm coming hat in hand, just like at a school fundraiser, to ask you to please, if you value the show and what it offers, make a donation to help sustain this podcast. You can go to our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and give what you feel is reasonable. In return, you'll get that warm, fuzzy feeling from knowing your gift is keeping something good afloat, and of course, if enough people do what you're doing, you'll get a fourth season. Here's your chance to be an education hero. Seize it! Okay, now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 12. How do we get this thing right? It's the beginning of 2021, and schools across the nation and the world are wrapping up their first semester in a COVID-19-influenced educational landscape one which has forced the majority of schools into fully remote or some sort of hybrid mix of in-person and remote teaching and learning. Between these last four months and the four that preceded it during the tail end of the last school year when the pandemic first hit, what have we learned? Well, we learned, and it may come as no surprise, that we had a really shaky start to all this. Despite there being over a thousand empirical studies of online learning in the last 30 years, most of those have focused on the post-secondary, that is, college and university population, and not pre-K through 12 schools, which are the focus of this podcast. The U.S. Department of Education's 2009 survey of online teaching and learning research returned a, quote, unexpected finding of the small number of rigorous published studies contrasting online and face-to-face learning conditions for K-12 students, end quote. Well, we've had a little more research in those realms since then, but it's still a surprisingly understudied field. Although not for long, I suspect, since the vast majority of education research this year has been focused on it. A lot of what we have so far doesn't look very promising. Take, for example, a Brookings Institute study of over 7 million records of online instruction in Midwestern urban schools, which pointed to limited gains and quite a lot of learning loss, especially among disadvantaged and vulnerable students in an online teaching and learning environment. As for why, the study's conclusion echoes what a lot of online education advocates often say, Well, virtual learning could work terrifically, you're just not doing it right. So where do teachers and administrators go to find out how to do it right? Well, not their teacher preparation programs, it turns out. Analysis of data collected by the U.S. Department of Education and the National Center for Education Statistics from 2009 to 2013 found that at least 75% of teacher preparation programs still fail to sufficiently prepare teachers with online and remote teaching skills. A 2014 study conducted by the National Council on Teacher Quality examined 1,668 teacher preparation programs, responsible all in all for graduating 99% of, quote, traditionally trained teachers, unquote, in the U.S., and found, quote, substantial inadequacies in instruction in effective digital and online teaching, end quote. Okay, so that's the middle of the last decade. Well, come 2017, a RAND report claimed that most teachers were still just using online instruction as one more means to deliver one-size-fits-all traditional lecture and test-based classes, as opposed to taking advantage of all the potentials for differentiation and engagement that online environments can offer. Even as recently as 2020, this past year, a national survey of over 1,200 pre-K-12 through teachers 
revealed that more than half of them, 56.7% if you're curious, felt insufficiently prepared for online instruction. And worse, fewer than 20% perceived a consistent and clear message from their school leadership when the pandemic first hit. Preliminary research from those early months of the pandemic estimate about a 30% dip in expected learning gains versus a typical year in reading and 50% drops in math, with an expected, quote, greater learning loss for minority and low-income children who have less access to technology and for families who are more affected by the economic downturn, unquote. One survey of 849 teenagers conducted by Common Sense Media in the spring found that 41% claimed to have not attended a single online class. That's not surprising, given a 2020 report by the Organization for Economic Development and Cooperation that found nearly 25% of students from disadvantaged backgrounds in the United States don't even have reliable access to a computer. Well, that was the spring. Now we've just cleared the fall, and as of yet, we haven't had access to much research about how these last few months played out. But anecdotal reports from popular media paint a rather dismal picture of overwhelmed teachers and disengaged students. I have to tell you that, personally, teaching in a hybrid environment with, on any given day, half my students in the classroom and half zooming in online has been beyond difficult. It's made me and all my colleagues, no matter how veteran, feel like first-year teachers again. One of them compared it to recovering from a massive injury that robs you of the use of a limb or of one of your senses. You know what you want to do, but you have to retrain your body how to actually do it. How do you do effective group work or paper conferences when students have to sit six feet apart? How do you make relationships with students who don't even have their cameras or mics on, showing up only as blank screens bearing a name, or not showing up at all? Even though we're in the nascent stages of vaccinating the public, all predictions point to the pandemic sticking around in some form for many months, perhaps even years. So we've got plenty of incentive still to get this online teaching thing working better. So how do we do that? Today, we have a guest on the show whose organization says they're offering a potential answer. Dr. April Willis serves as business director of the Austin, Texas-based National Virtual Teaching Association, or NVTA, which has undertaken the task of creating what they say are a set of universal and adaptable guidelines for online teaching and learning. While their main training and certification course is not free, so I can't evaluate it independently, Dr. Willis was gracious enough to appear as a guest on our program to explain what she and her team have been up to. So Dr. Willis, welcome to Ed Infinitum. Thank you so much, so happy to be here. We'd love to hear more about you. Uh, please let us know about your educational background and particularly um, your background in K-12 schools. Sure, so I taught for five years at the University of Texas Charter Schools. I had a multi-level classroom of kinder through third grade all day long. So that was 16 preps a day. Wow. Had, yeah, very high turnover. So my students were there anywhere for 24 hours to six weeks at a time. They were all escaping sexual and domestic violence. And so it was a very unique setting. I absolutely loved it though. While I was there, I also earned my principal certification. I then went on to earn my superintendent certification at Hutto ISD right outside of the Austin area. I uh, went on to work for the state at the Texas Center of District and School Support where I led school improvement initiatives statewide. I would visit low-performing schools and coach them through improvement initiatives. Uh, after a few years of doing that, I moved back to the district level where I've served as the director of business operations for a charter school in Austin. And then I was invited to the NVTA team. So here I am working to ensure high quality virtual instruction. I find it incredibly meaningful, especially during this current phase of our country's education story. Uh, but at this point in my career, I have worked at the campus district and state levels of education. 
I have a doctorate in education and three master's degrees. Uh, one is in curriculum and instruction, one is in ed leadership, and the third one is an MBA. Well, that's awesome. And you mentioned the NVTA, and this is a episode called How Do We Get This Right? How do we get past whatever it is that's making online teaching and learning so difficult? How do we seize upon those potentials that, that everyone keeps telling us are out there if only we can figure out kind of how to leverage them? Tell us a little bit more about the NVTA. Um, what are its origins? What's its mission, what's it's accomplished to date, and uh, where is it looking in the future? Oh, yeah, that's a lot to cover, but we got <laughs> <laughs> I always ask demanding questions of my guests. <laughs> Go for it. Sure. Um, well, the mission of the National Virtual Teacher Association is to inspire virtual teachers to provide excellent instruction. Our goal, our vision is to create a world where virtual teaching is as good as or even more effective than in-person instruction. So that's essentially what we're working to do. The way we got here, I'll give you a little bit of info on our background. Um, we were essentially built by a group of educational leaders uh, that pioneered the delivery of virtual education in the K-12 and the higher ed spaces. So we had seasoned superintendents, expert educators, expert technology entrepreneurs with a combined 150 years in education. And they were the ones that came together to come up with what this organization was gonna look like and how it was going to serve its purpose. We also have an education advisory board that consists of leaders, scholars, innovators from around the country with extensive knowledge of the importance of quality virtual instruction. So on that board, we have Dr. Sheila Harrison-Williams from the Arizona School Board Association, uh, Kimberly Harrington-Marcus, a former New Jersey Commissioner of Education, Dr. Tony Smith, the former State Superintendent of Illinois, and Clifton Talbert, a Pulitzer-nominated author, president and founder of the Building Community Institute. So we've got these powerhouse House people behind the work that we're doing. Um, and some of our biggest accomplishments to date would be we have developed the only national rubric for virtual instructors, creating a common language for virtual instruction across the country, which is something that we believe is desperately needed. And it is something that is kind of, I'm sure we're going to dig into some data and some numbers in a little bit, and we'll see that virtual instruction hasn't really given us the results that we would have hoped for at this point. And one of the biggest reasons I believe that is, is because there is no common language or expectations around what successful and effective virtual learning looks like. So being able to develop this set of rubrics has been one of our greatest accomplishments. It's available absolutely free to anybody who's interested in downloading those. So we encourage everyone to go to the website and download that. Indeed, I did. Um, we've also created a free professional development course. This is for anyone who's just looking to get their feet wet with some PD and virtual instruction, but maybe they're not quite ready to take the plunge with a full certification program just yet. So again, this is a free course available to anybody who wants to go to the website and sign up for it. We estimate it'll take anywhere from one to three hours to complete, but you'll come out with a whole source, a list of sources that you'll be able to implement immediately. So at the top of the show, I mentioned this recent Brookings Institute report. I see you've actually posted a link to it on your website as well. The report highlights a, quote, both a need for caution in the rapid expansion of online courses in high schools and a need for stronger scaffolding of support and appropriate targeting of students to realize the benefits of online instruction, end quote. You mentioned a little bit earlier that you felt that some of the reason why you think so many of these online teaching and learning efforts have performed poorly is that, you know, folks really don't have a collectively agreed upon sense of what makes for quality online teaching and learning. Is that a fair assessment of your opinion? Yes, I think that's definitely fair. I'm happy to elaborate on that if you'd like. Sure, I'd love to hear more about that, please. 
Okay, so basically what we were faced with with COVID is most educators were hurled into a virtual classroom with little to no formal training. And I was one of them. <laughs> yeah, and by no choice of your own. Like this was not a decision you consciously made to be like, I think I'm ready to expand my horizons as an educator and explore the virtual environment. You were forced to do it with no chance to transition. Um, there was previously no common language or standards that were set amongst the, uh, educators across districts, states, and of course not the country. Um, so we were kind of put in this position where everybody had to make do with what they had as quickly as possible. And unfortunately, the data has proven that that didn't fare so well for us or for our students. So for example, um, just going back to COVID time, 93% of homes with school age children were utilizing some form of virtual instruction during COVID-19. And there were some positives to that, but before we talk about the positive, let's talk about some of those negatives. Um, we know that we have more than 40% of our students in middle school and high school are failing in New Mexico. In Houston, 42% of our students earned an F in the first grading period of this year as we've continued to see that virtual education trend continue on. St. Paul, Minnesota, we've got, again, nearly 40% of our high school students have Fs, which is more than double their average. So we've got these little pockets of information, almost like case study data from across the country that shows almost nobody is doing a really great job at this right now. Um, it's also kind of disappointing because we've got globally, when we talk about our numbers, we've got 1.2 billion children in 186 countries that had to leave the traditional classroom for virtual instruction. And we know right now that we've got two to three times as many students failing than they would any other point in the, for their educational career because of the virtual instruction. So all of this data tells us, unfortunately, we're not getting the results that we want. But it also lets us know that we need to come up with some we need to come up with some strategies to address these to get the results that we want. This doesn't mean virtual learning will never work. It means virtual learning absolutely has the potential to work because everybody was able to transition so quickly, but they needed a little bit of training to really make the best of it. So some positive stats that we can talk about when it comes to virtual instruction, it requires 40 to 60% less time to learn than in traditional classrooms because students are allowed to learn at their own pace. Another cool thing about virtual instruction is students tend to retain 25 to 60% more material when learning online. And again, it's because they have the ability to interact with their learning. They can go back and rewatch lectures. They have access to all of the curriculum right there in front of them. They can process it on their own and they have the opportunity to almost take control of their learning. So for those reasons, we know that this is absolutely worth exploring. We just know that we're not quite there yet, but we are inspired to get there. And I think the other thing that personally, what really motivates me to make sure that this is something that we are able to excel at is the idea that I believe that every single student should be served whatever environment that meets their needs best. So not every kiddo has the opportunity to go to a school with high quality instructors in a face-to-face -face environment. There could be health issues. It could be uh, geographical issues. When we talk about what rural schools are able to offer sometimes for their students when they have a limited workforce, uh, that's going to look very different if we were able to give that child the opportunity to explore education in which they had world-class teachers who are specifically trained to provide them the education that they deserve. And I think that's possible when we look at the online environment. One of the challenges of really any kind of initiative in transforming public education in America is that there's no such thing as 
public education in America, right? You've got 13,000 some odd different districts that are all sort of operating on their own autonomous or semi-autonomous plans. Uh, we've got other organizations like ISTE, for example, the International Society for Technology and Education, that put out their own technology goals and standards and recommendations. How is NPTA planning to kind of break through that noise and try and forward your particular rubrics and your particular vision? Uh, so we're doing podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Never underestimate the power of podcasts. <laughs> um, I think primarily our goal was we need to get this into as many hands as possible, as quickly as possible, which is why we made the rubrics free, which is why we made the professional development course free. We feel like if we can blast that out to as many people, get them on board with it, then I think that will also kind of just trigger something in them that says, I'm really interested in pursuing the certification for myself. But in terms of what we're doing, Doing to get even those free materials in the hands of people. Of course, we're doing the things that you would expect from a marketing perspective. We are running those social media campaigns. We are definitely trying to get our name in uh, the books of journals, magazines, making the interviews happen for podcasts. And then we also just have a really strong pipeline of people, thanks to our advisory board and thanks to the other people on the team who are coming from really solid educational backgrounds. And we're asking them, like, reach out, like, let's start to make this snowball. And so we are handing it out to all of our educator friends and we're asking them to continue to hand it out to all of their educator friends and our goal is that we continue to um, champion the work that we're doing we continue to be advocates of solid online virtual instruction and we're constantly talking about it and posting about it on social media the word's going to get out there is an absolute need for this school districts are talking about the needs nationwide so it's just a matter of letting them know that we exist as you're kind of spreading the word that existence, those standards, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how those standards came to be. What was your process as a group in putting those particular standards together and that rubric together? How did you go about researching? Who did you interview? How did you distill best practices into kind of this one particular rubric? So it's actually a set of 22 rubrics. And ah. so, yeah, um, they're a set of rubrics. And so our set of rubrics are divided into five domains. Within every domain, there are a series of indicators. And we are going over everything from the way the teacher looks on screen, their personal affect, their background, their green screen, to how they're building relationships when they're not even in the virtual classroom. What are they doing to communicate and keep that line of communication open with students, with students? parents and their guardians, um, what they're doing if they happen to have a co-teacher, a facilitator, or aide in their classroom, what does that look like to work with an aide in a different environment and at a different physical location, but you're supposed to be working together to support students. We are talking about all of those things. The great thing about those rubrics also is they are applicable for grades P through 12, and it is not content specific. You can absolutely apply them to any content area, and you can use it not only as an instructor to say, I know that this is what high quality instruction looks like, but your principals and administrators can use it to evaluate your, your virtual instruction to say, well, we can tell based on this rubric that here are the examples of what it would look like to be an accomplished teacher, and we're not seeing you quite there yet. You're in the basic realm or you're in the proficient realm. So um, we've got all of that. And the way we got there is, again, we had a huge host of superintendents, educational experts, technology experts. We got them together and we said, let's talk about what this should look like. And one thing that we know is that high quality education 
looks like high quality education, whether you are in the classroom or whether you are teaching virtually. The difference is how do we take care of those little nuance and address the little nuance differences of, for example, classroom management. What does classroom management look like in a virtual environment? Solid classroom management across the board is going to look like engaged students. It's going to look like students who take accountability for their own learning, students who can support each other when they notice somebody else is getting out of line. We are addressing social emotional learning. Um, we have restorative justice practices as well. All of those things are happening in the virtual environment. It's just a matter of empowering teachers to know that it can happen. It is transferable. And we want to make sure that you feel equipped to enable that type of learning environment in your classroom. So those were the conversations that were had. Of course, we're also looking at the research. We're looking at Virtual learning is not brand new when you think about it. This has been going on for a long time in the higher ed world. So we have a lot of data to pull from from there. And then the idea of even correspondence learning goes back hundreds of years, right? Like that's way before the internet even. We so, had an episode on that, yes. Oh yeah. So we know that the idea is not incredibly innovative. What is innovative is to get the entire country to do it at the same time without any prior practice in the elementary, middle and high school realm. But but we're getting there and then we've got data to pull from it. So our team was looking at what is some of this, what are some of the successful practices we see in higher ed? What are some of the successful practices that we see for organizations who do exist, who were doing this online? But this is not the first time we're doing it for the P12 world either. There have been online schools for some time now. It just hasn't been the norm. So we are pulling data from all of that. And then of course, we're also looking at state standards. We're looking at, and we know every standard or every state has their own set of standards, but a lot a lot of them generally are speaking to some of the same pieces. We're talking about, again, student engagement, instructional practices, uh, administration and their leadership practices. And so we're able to pull from a lot of those commonalities that we're seeing because at the end of the day, what do we all want? We just want students to learn and we want them to do it in a way that is effective. We want them to get an education that they deserve. And we definitely believe that it should be equitable. We believe every single student, no matter where they are, no matter what type of education they previously had, if they're coming into this online world, what are we doing to really make a difference for them and give them the education they deserve? So with that being the backbone of everything we're doing, we feel very confident in the standards that we've created through our rubrics and of course through the certification program. Gotcha. So give me an example. What's something the rubrics have in there for me if I'm a teacher looking to hone my online teaching skills, which I am, or if I'm an administrator looking to evaluate a teacher in their use of those skills? What can I find in there? So first of all, to clarify, the rubrics exist in order to create common expectations and a common language about what quality and effective virtual learning looks like. They are not necessarily an instruction manual on how to implement each of these steps. Instead, it's a higher level if we are looking at what the expectations are for every single classroom, whether P12 or higher ed, how they're conducting the virtual instruction, and if we're making sure that we're meeting the needs of all of our learners and that the teachers are able to employ effective strategies, we would use these rubrics to evaluate that. If I were an administrator, I would be able to evaluate my educators by using these rubrics and saying, look, I can tell from the critical criteria, for example, in 2A, that it looks like you are kind of hovering around the proficient realm right now. I would love to see you go to accomplished. So these are the things we need to see based on the critical criteria and the examples in accomplished. So this is really 
to show people what the expectation is, but it doesn't necessarily tell them how to get there. If they are interested in how to get there, that's where our course would come in. So we do have the NVTA certification course where you can be certified to become a virtual instructor, in which case you have been given all of the tools and how to implement the strategies and the expectations outlined in the rubric. So I hope that kind of helps make sense of how the rubrics fit in with the certification course. Uh, throwing in one more thing at you, we do have the handbook as well, available for only $9.95 through Amazon. Um, that handbook also provides more examples, of real world examples, of what the rubrics look like in action. And so we actually have real teachers, real administrators submit stories of this is how I was able to employ these strategies. And so we kind of go, um, there is almost an example for every one of the rubrics. Um, so people can go in there and see this is what my expectations are. And I'm not just going to read about it in theory, but I'm going to see in practice, this is what it should look like, because here I have an example set for me of what a teacher was able to, of a teacher who was able to employ this with they look like in practice. And to let my listeners know, you did share with me some of those broken down specific examples, like uh, the rubric category concerning multiple instructional methods. That's where you mention, I'll quote, quiz games, breakout rooms, chat features, virtual field trips, student screen share, teaching their peers, uh, direct instruction, just as in-person teaching should be solely direct instruction, neither should virtual teaching. You'll notice a proficient teacher in this category only utilizes one to two instructional methods, meaning they probably got really comfortable with Kahoot or maybe breakout rooms in the chat feature, but they're having difficulty branching out and seeking innovative ways to reach students, whereas a teacher who's really developed those skills will use more of those features. Now, so far, we've been talking about remote and virtual learning and, of course, about 12% of schools servicing about 1.1-ish million students are pursuing some form of blended or, or hybrid learning. And I'm wondering, does NVTA have a particular position or rubric for this type of learning? Are there any best practices or recommendations you've come up with that are specifically geared toward hybrid environments? Oh, great question. So first of all, again, like me personally, I just want to share that I am a huge proponent of hybrid models, high flex models, anything that we can do to support student learning. Again, I'm a proponent of school choice. So if a student says, for example, I find it in my best interest to stay at home during these periods of the day, but I still want to participate in band, or I still want to be on the basketball team, or I know that if I go in person to learn world language, I'm probably going, my personality is I feel like I will pick it up better if I'm immersed in that physically. However, these other classes tend to work for me, or parents feel like it's better for our schedule. Uh, I believe that this is going to serve my student best. Whatever that looks like, yes, of course, let's do it. Let's make the most of it. When it comes to some of the ways that you might see that be more successful is I think that it's building relationships. Essentially, that's what it comes down to. I feel like if we're able to build positive relationships with students, we can continue to help them take ownership of their learning, which is something that a lot of people, when they talk about why virtual learning is so hard for them, well, we don't have accountability for what the students are. We're not able to hold them accountable for what they do at home. We can't tell them, hey, if you're tardy to class and physically, these are the kind 
kind of your uh, consequences, but online, well, we're supposed to be more flexible. So I'm not really sure how to hold them accountable for that. Like those are a couple of the, I guess, um, areas people, teachers are tending to have concern with. But instead, what we're seeing is if you have a high flex model, there are still ways for you to hold students accountable. And it is through building positive relationships. It is letting parents know that these are the expectations. We're gonna need your support to kind of help guide your child through this. These are things I would typically do for your child if they were at my classroom in person. But since they're not, this is what I'm gonna need from you. And when you can start to build those positive relationships, set those standards and expectations early on, we tend to see that they do have more positive outcomes. Um, one more thing that I would really encourage teachers to do is there's a little bit of apprehension around maximizing the technology and the resources that we have available to them. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest disadvantages that we're seeing in running virtual classrooms is the apprehension from teachers. Um, a lot of times teachers are, you know, I've always done things a certain way. I'm comfortable doing things in the routine that I've created. And now you're showing me a lot of new stuff. I want to learn your new stuff. I'm scared to learn it, or I'm too timid to learn it, or uh, that's not for me. I like to work in this I like to work over here in this operating system, or I like to use this platform. I don't like to use this other one. And so I feel like what we could be doing as educators is kind of taking a step back, looking at the big picture, again, with the ultimate goal of student learning. What can we do to support them? And just as we would encourage our students to take risks, get out there, try, some, try to learn something new that might seem a little bit scary at first, but if you stick with it and you've got that positive growth mindset, you're gonna see the positive outcomes that come from it. And I feel like teachers need to kind of lead by example when it comes to that, because we have a wealth of resources that always are not necessarily being used the way that they were intended to or not used at all. And that is also going to prohibit successful virtual learning because you've got the tools, but you don't use the tools. Um, so I think if we can start doing that and the high flex and hybrid models will work a little bit better kind of gets into my next question. You know, most of our listeners are teachers and I think a lot of them are perhaps feeling a little uncertain or definitely feeling tapped out or frustrated or dispirited with online learning during the pandemic. Two questions. One is how would you specifically speak to that sense of, okay, you know, the relationship of course is what we want, but my students are coming online with a blank screen, um, or my students just aren't coming online at all. They've got too many other things going on in the background. How do I even bring them to the table with this? I guess I'll, I'll hold for my other question. How would you respond to that? Yeah, sure. So definitely not a Montessori approach, but I am a huge advocate of rewarding students because external and extrinsic rewards work for adults and it's gonna work for kids as well. And when you start to build that relationship with them in terms of understanding what they like, what they don't like, we talk about a lot of this in the certification course and in the rubrics, doing interest surveys to learn your students and then using the results of those surveys to then help motivate your students. We find out you've got a kiddo in first grade who's obsessed with Spider-Man, but he never wants to come on the screen. Give them an excuse to, hey, guess what? If you can um, wear your Spidey pajamas to school today, we would love to see you. And he would be so excited to do that. And so I feel like just, and of course that is like the smallest, most minuscule example ever, but it is one example of how you would use student interests to get them to do exactly what you need them to do. And of course, when you build those relationships with students, again, just like in an in-person physical classroom, 
those kids want to please you. They want to do things to make you feel proud of them because that makes them feel good. And when you've got that relationship, that's when you're going to see those results. If you don't have the relationship and it is just log in, log off, oh, too bad you didn't show up. You've just failed for the day. And we're not following up with you. and don't really care what your situation is. You're not going to see the results that either you or the student want. So it's important that, again, and we're involving those parents, letting them know what those expectations are. So if we have everybody agreeing upon expectations, Expectations. And then this goes back again to more social emotional learning. I mean, we are capturing kids' hearts here. So if you're familiar with the flip flipping group at all, um, which again, we've used a lot of these other experts in the field and looked at their models like Marzano, Danielson, and then the capturing kids' hearts model um, from the flipping group. So when you talk about what that looks like, we've got students agreeing on a social contract at the beginning of every school year. And if you have high turnover, that might be at the beginning of every six weeks, whatever that looks like for your classroom. But that again, puts them in the power and makes them feel like they're not being told what to do, but they get choices. I can choose to do this. I can choose to do that. I know either one of them are going to have the consequences, maybe intended or not. And we're going to work through it. We're going to coach them. We're going to help them become the best student they can be. Because as a teacher, your job is not to just sit there and tell them what to do, but it is to empower them to take ownership of their learning and to coach them to be better versions of themselves. So at the end of the school year, you feel like you've done a great job getting them ready for that next grade level. And and they feel proud of the work that they've accomplished. Awesome. And personally, I would love to show up to work in my spider pajamas. I will have to ask <laughs> my principal if that's okay. Um, I, I guess the other piece is obviously there are huge inequities in our, our systems of public schooling and the pandemic has only widened those in many cases. If we're moving to, uh, well, we're, we're in this virtual realm right now and it's unclear how much of this will linger after the pandemic's gone. What about that digital divide? What about uh, the students who, for whatever reasons, uh, can't afford or don't have access to broadband internet, reliable uh, access to laptops? How should schools go about addressing that situation? Yeah, great question. We actually just wrote an article and did an infographic for this that have been posted on our social media sites. And one of the things that we talk about is the data that shows that the less income a family makes, the more likely they are to not take advantage of online or virtual options. However, they are doing it to a certain point. They're just not doing it 100%. And then higher the income the family, the more likely they are to take advantage of 100% virtual learning options. So what we're noticing is they are still, if you're a low income family, and we are talking about some of the inequities that come with um, students that are economically disadvantaged, they are still doing some of it online, whether that's on their parents' cell phone, whether it's on a Chromebook that the school was able to loan them, but they have to go to the McDonald's to use the free internet, whatever that looks like, they're doing it to some extent. And what that means is in order for students to still be able to take advantage of that type of learning environment, teachers need to be willing to invest in doing what's best to meet the needs of those students. And some examples of that are, we're recording all of our lectures and we're housing them in a learning uh, platform so that students can go back and watch them at any point. And that's something that's so simple to do. And a lot of teachers since COVID have realized, hey, this is something I can do for everybody forever. There's no reason not to. Even if I go back to 100% of my students in person, I should still be recording these lectures so that if somebody wasn't super great at taking notes or somebody had a dentist appointment, whatever the case may be, they can go back and watch that lecture. It's not that they just completely lost 45 minutes of learning that they no longer have access to. So what an easy way 
to meet the needs of all of your learners where they can go back, they can pause, they can process, they can take their own notes. I mean, that's such a phenomenal way for us to be able to help meeting needs of students who are not able to take advantage of online education all of the time, but have access some of the time. Other ways, we're uh, putting all of your homework on those learning platforms. There is no reason for a student to ever say now, I left my homework at school, my dog ate my homework, I left it in the car, I left it in a locker. Like all of that stuff should be online and they can access it anywhere at any time. Um, also, we're putting all of their grades online, and I know a lot of schools were already doing this before COVID anyway, but again, not all of them were. And so if we can get everybody across the country kind of aligned with some of these really quick wins, it's going to make the teachers, I believe, feel a little bit better about what's going on because they're going to be like, oh, hey, this is easy. I can do this, and I'm helping my students. Why not? Win-win. Um, and then I also feel like it's definitely going to continue to help students take ownership of their learning, which I know is a common theme that I said throughout and I think it's because it is very important and that's how we get solid learners um, but going back to the original question how are we helping those students who are economically disadvantaged um, I think those were some quick tips that we can do the quick wins I think it is also of course then making sure that the whenever they're not utilizing online learning that they still have access to learning somehow some way whether that is they need to come to the school to pick up learning packets once a week they can do that if physical in-person learning is not an option at the district at that time time. Um, if people are having to mail packets to certain students, we should be doing that. Learning pods are also an option where we've seen teachers who are doing um, on location learning where they take their pickup trucks and they put the kids around the bed and they do a read aloud or whatever they need to do. Uh, we've seen teachers really show up, really get creative, do whatever it takes to help those students. Now, specifically from the NBTA stance, we're talking a little bit less about that and a little bit more about how do you maximize online learning. And so being able to say, go into your truck and drive out somewhere isn't necessarily something we're going to be an advocate of because that's not what we specialize in, but we absolutely appreciate and see what teachers are doing across the country to make the most of this really uncertain time in which they knew that they had to show up for their kids somehow and they've done a phenomenal job. Well, again, we're in this uncertain time, but we're, we're hoping eventually this uncertain time will pass, the pandemic will heater out. And I'm curious, based on your expertise and your experience, what elements of online or blended learning do you think are going to remain long after COVID-19 is a memory? Or rather, maybe what do you think will remain and what do you think should and shouldn't remain and why? Oh, yeah, so a couple of them we just talked about. The idea of putting all of your homework online, recording all of your lectures, keeping them online. Even if we go back to in-person learning, there's no reason we should stop doing those things. I think storing lectures and assignments to review later, perfect. Everybody should be doing that all the time. I also think that as teachers start exploring more of the technological resources that they have available to them and they become more comfortable with them, even when they get back in person, they might continue to use those resources. So one quick, easy example is Kahoot. And I don't know if you've ever used Kahoot before. Some teachers, yeah, were using that before COVID. A lot of them had never heard of it before. And they were introduced to it during COVID. They start and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And you can do that when you are in person as well. So I think as we become made aware of more of the resources that are available to us uh, technologically, then we probably will start bringing some of those back into the classroom if the school districts decide that's the safest route to take is to get everybody back inside. 
Um, I feel like some of the things that I would say don't bring back, I don't know if there would be anything I would put on the don't bring back list, but there would be things that I would put on the continue to improve upon list, like continue to work on what differentiation looks like. I hear that continues to be a struggle for a lot of teachers, but it shouldn't necessarily be too much of a struggle because we have a lot of resources out there that allow you to do one-on-one -on -one instruction, small group learning instruction, for example, utilizing the breakout rooms feature. Do you know how fearful a lot of teachers are to utilize that feature because they're afraid they might get kicked off or a kid might get kicked off and they're not gonna be able to keep an eye on everybody. But when again, you've got those solid classroom management and classroom behavior strategies in place, you have relationships with your students in which they understand and respect the expectations. They know how to hold each other accountable when one of them starts to go awry. All of those things are going to help you utilize a breakout room structure just like you would in person where you have small groups and each uh, group knows exactly what they should be doing. They know exactly what rotations look like. They have those transitions down. You can create that insane type of environment in the virtual school and in a virtual classroom. So I think that would be an example of something I would love to see teachers continue to work on to get right because you've had it right in person. We just need to get it right now. And I understand also that that could be dependent on the type of platform that you're using. So for example, when I talk about breakout rooms, that's if you're on a Zoom platform. That could look different if you're on a different video delivery system platform. Um, but we know that there are tools out there that exist. We also talk about the importance of scaffolding um, and we also talk about the importance of multiple intelligences. And I do believe that the virtual environment, even though it might seem a little scary sometimes, um, it gives you just as many opportunities to speak to every one of those individual unique learners through the way that they learn best, just like you could in person. So when we talk about multiple intelligences with your um, kinesthetic learners, your audio learners, your visual learners, your interpersonal, interpersonal, like your naturalistic learners, all of those things can still be addressed in the virtual classroom. It's just gonna take a little bit of tweaking to some of the things that you already were doing successfully in person. Well, it sounds like the work you're doing with NVTA speaks to that hope of the potential of online learning to really help learning be customized for many different kinds of students to make it more personalized and more engaging. My last question for you is, let's say one of my listeners says, this sounds great. I would love to be a part of these efforts to, to design and facilitate and disseminate best practices. How would a person like that get involved with NVTA's work? We would love to have somebody like that get involved. And some of the options that we have would be going to virtualteacherassociation.org. And you will see at the very top, there are three tabs. Um, one of those tabs is called programs. Another one's called resources. You can click on either of those, start scrolling down. You're going to see the free rubrics available. You're going to see the free professional development course. You're also going to see a book that we wrote, and it's an accompanying handbook to the rubrics. Um, it's only $9.95 on Amazon and basically it provides narratives and real world examples and kind of explaining step by step every single rubric what it would look like in practice and we actually give like case study real world examples of teachers who did a phenomenal job at a lot of those um, so that could be something that you continue to look into um, and of course we have the certification course on there the certification course is an excellent opportunity for educators to take their own professional development to the next level um, and we expect that can take 
up to nine months for you to complete it. Most educators are completing it probably at around three months. We also offer a graduate course um, credit through that. So Adams State University has accredited the certification program so that if you do sign up for it, you can get three grad graduate credit hours through ASU, which is phenomenal. Um, and then we also have a training of trainers. And so if you feel like, hey, we've got a district worth of people that we would love to learn more about this, but we can't necessarily afford every single one of them to get certified, can we do a group training? And we do offer group trainings both in person and virtually. Terrific. Well, thank you very much, Dr. April Lewis, for the work you're doing and for appearing on an infant item today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. How do we get this right? NVTA seems representative of a number of players in an increasingly crowded and profitable field of online teaching and learning consultants and trainers. It raises the question, is effective online teaching and learning a matter of the right training or the right resources? Which, incidentally, has been the question plaguing teaching and learning in the physical world for the last half century. Is it all about getting more computers and better infrastructure into schools and neighborhoods, the logical extension of needing more books and more money for higher paid teachers? Or have we just not gotten the techniques down yet? Is this a teacher training problem or a policy problem? And if it is a policy problem, does that mean it just concerns education policy? Or is it also a matter of housing and childcare and especially healthcare? I imagine the answer is complex, and it's not one we'll be able to settle in this episode because... That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great, then you're in for a treat. Today's fun fact about education. I'm not sure there's any universal agreement on the highest ranked school in the world, but I can tell you the highest school, literally by elevation, in the world. The primary school in Funachangtang, Tibet. At 5,373 meters, it's actually higher than base camp at Mount Everest. Bye now.